This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. Reaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser, and welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Your faithful podcast host in a one of a kind podcast that doesn't fear to cross those, to breach those divides between the Islamic world the land dominated by Islamist thought, and the West, the land of freedom, the land of liberty, the land that the Islamists believe is the land of war. As your faithful American patriot, former Navy lieutenant commander, I've undertaken this journey, and I hope you've joined me in it, and I thank you for subscribing, and thank you for joining me week to week, and for those of you who are new, I hope you'll uh, stick with me and be able to join me in this voyage to understand the challenges and the debates that we need to have in America when it comes to Islam, Muslims, Islamism, the war on terror, Middle East policy, free speech, and our national security. You know, there's a saying that my grandfather used to say, my parents have said and you know as i'm not even sure it might not even be arabic in its origin uh, as you know my parents are from syria but uh, you know i've heard uh, some attributed to uh, confucius but the bottom line is is there's a saying that when the teacher points to the moon the idiots look at the finger and i actually mentioned that during my senate testimony a few months ago on on radical Islam and why it's important to name our enemy. Today, I think that that is the theme of our podcast today, our episode. A lot of uh, issues uh, related to Muslims, Islam, refugees. You know, last week, uh, thank you for listening to uh, my mock interview with the refugee coming from Syria and and what we should be asking and what we shouldn't be asking them. And uh, I hope you got something out of my little mock conversation with Abdul. But this week, we were recently told that there have been in the 10,000 mark of refugees that have gotten here that President Obama was so proud to have achieved that in that 10,099% were Muslim and but 52 out of 10,000 were Christian and again there should not be faith tests about those who we should accept or who we shouldn't but as a Muslim as somebody who has quite a bit invested in this war and who has family that we've been trying to get to leave because 
of the genocide against Sunnis that had been happening for years. But in addition, there's the reality of the fact there's a genocide against the Christians committed by ISIS. And there's what I've called a genocide sandwich in Syria. And the two extremes of the war that are fighting, one is the Assad regime, the killing machine of the Alawite monsters that are part of the Ba'athism, of Assadism, if you will, that Bashar Assad has deployed upon his people and now along with Russia and Iran are carpet bombing Syria and along with Hezbollah and the radical Shia Islamist elements of their alliance that is trying to ethnically cleanse either by displacing them internally, the millions displaced externally, or simply the half a million that have been killed with over 10 million displaced. It is horrific what's occurring, the use of chemical weapons, the use of carpet bombing into normal neighborhoods that are not even engaged in the war. And yet that has not been called a genocide. And clearly we saw the actions of ISIS, especially in northeast Syria and Raqqa and other cities that had significant Christian populations as those Christian Yazidi and other minority populations have been pushed out, slaughtered, and clearly acts of genocide have been committed against them. And thankfully, the State Department, after being prodded by our Congress, which passed legislation demanding that it be identified as a genocide, identified that the existence of Christians is on the verge of extinction in Syria because of this genocidal sandwich that is happening, and especially, obviously, because of the actions of ISIS that beheads women and children, that forces conversion, that enacts draconian, inhuman methods of speech control and implementation of their evil interpretations of Sharia law or Islamic law. So clearly genocide is happening there. And yet, so we, and especially I'm, I'm here to tell you as, as a Sunni Muslim, an American, that I would want my country to accept people based on merit, based on those who truly are suffering. So it should not be proportional to faith. It should not be proportional to politics. It should be proportional to those who truly are refugees and without the ability to escape to sanctuaries of freedom and liberty in the West would be killed and have nowhere else to go. That is the definition of a refugee and especially those who would seek religious political asylum, who would seek that city on a hill for religious freedom. And so when we look at these numbers, many programs this week have been talking about those numbers, and, and I, I just want you to understand my perspective on this is that the numbers should reflect. Now, again, in the Muslim population, the so-called vetting process, which you and I have talked about before, includes no theopolitical vetting. We should not be accepting Islamists. What are Islamists? 
those who believe in the concept, the identity, the allegiance to any Islamic state, to Sharia law when Muslims are a majority, those who reject Americanism, those who reject our ideas, secular governance, who reject our militaries and reject loyalty to a secular non-Muslim state, those who want Sharia law implemented and do not want common law or Western law based in reason or especially under our U.S. Constitution. So that's the Islamists. Some studies have shown 20 to 30 percent of Muslims believe in an Islamist movement. So even though there may be some true refugees and those, I as an American would reject having them come into our country, have them go to other Islamist countries, be it Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Iran, they may not want them, they may not be asking for them or let them come in, but it is not our role to engage in national fratricide in which we allow people to come in to our country that do not accept the preeminence of our ideology, our political constitutional republic ideology as being the primary loyalty that they would have if they came to our country. So, Take those 20 to 30% out of the total 10,000. And if you had 99,000 that are Muslim, then you clearly, if we had been vetting correctly, would have had 20,000 more slots, 20 to 30,000 more slots for other non-Muslims, which clearly would not be Islamists. Now, one of the things you have to remember is that we're not only vetting against Islamists, but we should vet against sympathizers with communism, sympathizers with socialism, ideologies that again reject our constitution, Russian ideologues who are in bed completely with the Assadists, the Assadists who are the Ba'athists, national socialist fascists of Syria, those we should not allow into this country. The Syrian intelligence along with Russian intelligence, be it through Snowden, be it through their electronic army, has attacked our newspapers, our companies, and our military machines and corporate computer machines. So uh, their cyber warfare that they've engaged in is one element of the war in which we should not be allowing them in. So once we vet, be it Muslim or non-Muslim populations, for Islamism, socialism, and against supremacist ideas, then I think the numbers will work themselves out. And interestingly, before the onslaught of Islamists, before these 10,000 that President Obama so gleefully this week, this week talked about, when in the realm of things, actually those numbers are low. And I know some of you feel we shouldn't let any in, but listen, there are 10 million refugees out of Syria, and this country has opened its arms for those who share our values in the toughest of times, in the toughest of times during war as we did in World War II with the Japanese and the Germans and Italians, as we did in the Vietnam War with the Vietnamese. We tried to vet against those who were loyal to the Soviets and those who were loyal to communism, but we did not shut our doors. So, again, I, I would say vet it appropriately, call it extreme vetting, call it what you want, that the numbers would work themselves out. It is abhorrent that the numbers of Christians are so small. 
And it just shows this is a pathology where this, the, the method so far is a Darwinian first come, first serve, where the surge of Sunni Islamists, non-Islamists dominated the other communities and Christians who don't feel comfortable in the refugee camps and others are sort of left out. Or maybe they're not even identifying and they're there. We don't know. We should have vetting against Islamism. And then once you say only non-Islamists can come, you'll find a larger proportion of those who seek religious freedom, including Yazidis, Christians, and others. So, it's not the numbers. It's the bias of Darwinian, sort of the evolutionary process that we're using. That's what creates these numbers. The numbers are the finger, the reality that the teacher is pointing to, the moon, if you will, is the fact that we're not vetting for ideology. And once we do, the numbers will adjust themselves to a more appropriate, more rational, and more fair method of immigration of refugees who seek asylum in the United States. When we come back, let's we'll talk about the absurd the unbelievably absurd statement that Secretary Kerry made that actually probably revealed the truth about his inanity and approach to counterterrorism. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. I'll be right back. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. Reaching the fault lines of today, this is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another segment of this week's episode of Reform This, the place that uh, you can get the truth when it comes to the battle of ideas between the West and the East, the place that you can find a patriotic, patriotic Muslim who is joining you in this battle to preserve our homeland, to secure our homeland against the threat, the greatest global threat in the 21st century of radical Islam. Now, we were talking about percentages, the refugees. The next issue, I think, when it comes to what are we pointing to, where are we headed, what do idiots look at and what do smart, rational Americans look at. Well, Secretary Clary this week made it clear what an idiot would look at. He said, remember this, and this he said, by the way, in Bangladesh, a country that is on the edge of riots and a democracy that is teetering on instability. It's a secular democracy that has strong movements of secular um Leadership, but also strong anti-movements of Islamists that want to destroy modernization. And this is a Muslim, 99% Muslim country. Well, so he went there to help them after and to speak to them after recent acts of terrorism committed by ISIS. ISIS is able to grab hold there as they have in the West because of the freedom they exploited and radicalized 
militant elements. So he took the opportunity to tell them, he said, remember this, no country is immune from terrorism. It's easy to terrorize. Government and law enforcement have to be correct 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. But if you decide one day that you're going to be a terrorist and you're willing to kill yourself, you can go out and kill some people. You can make some noise. Perhaps the media would do us all a service if they didn't cover it quite as much. People just wouldn't know what's going on. And the secretaries hearken to supremacist media control by autocrats was met with applause in a foreign country. By the way, does he think that if we ignored it, it would not exist, it would not happen? The war against free people is not because of our government's attention or our media's attention. It's because of social media and the impact of freedom and liberty. It's because of the war happening in the Middle East in the Arab awakening that unleashed the battle and exchange of ideas. And initially, this was not started by Islamists. It was started by those who wanted to fight against monarchs and military dictators. But that vacuum quickly opened. The secularists were not organized. They were too divided and barely understood what alternatives they could provide from an organized political perspective. So the Islamists organized in the infrastructure of the mosque sermonizing political, theopolitical network of the Muslim Brotherhood and other Islamist movements then filled that in. So, no, if we ignored terrorism, it would not go away. Secretary Kerry and President Obama and Secretary Hillary Clinton before him want to ignore the fact that we are in a war, that the 21st century battle is a battle against Islamic theocracy, no different than where Christianity was in its time in history before the American Revolution. And we can either ignore that and let the Islamists battle it out with the Russians and the Shia sectarian battles between Sunni and Shia and let the entire Middle East implode. Or if we want to avoid ever having to send our troops again, then we need to take sides within the House of Islam. But to say that ignoring terrorism is sort of like telling a smoker, ignore the cough, don't talk about the cough, because there is no cancer. Ignore the drunk driving. It's not about the drunk driving. Just ignore it. It's, it's, there's no problem with the drinking or the you know, alcoholism. Well, what's that? Don't even talk about We're not in a war on alcoholism. This is just a few drunk kids that got in a car and hurt somebody. That's what, that's what he wants us. That, that's what that's about. It's about suppressing free speech. It's about keeping the American public away from understanding what we are fighting. And these acts of terrorism are getting closer together, getting larger on softer targets from San Bernardino to Paris to Belgium, Orlando, back from the Boston bombing years ago, just a few years ago. And yet we aren't learning our lesson. This administration will leave a legacy of negligence, of malpractice, will leave a legacy of complete surrender to the ideologies that they would not name. And now... You 
know, bless his heart, President Bush, who even got it wrong by calling it a war on terror. It was a war on Al-Qaedaism, on Islamism, but even that he wouldn't name, but at least he called it terrorism. Secretary Kerry, in a foreign country, wanted to tell the world that the media should control even its discussion of terrorism. And as we've seen in every attack, the president takes quite a while to identify terrorists, and yet when it comes to police actions and other things, he's having press conferences in 90 minutes from the Oval Office giving Americans lectures about the reality of race relations in America. So when the president has his priorities, he can act quickly and lecture us on the the things that are important to him. But when it comes to global vision, national security, and understanding that 56 Muslim-majority countries are run almost entirely by theocrats and monarchs and autocrats and supremacists who don't in any way ascribe to our values, and yet we call them our allies, is a major blind spot that has rendered us impotent and has marginalized reformers, which is really the point of my podcast, which is why you and I gather, is that this type of neglect, this type of blind, willful blindness, as Andy McCarthy has called it, is rendering us weak. The next thing I wanted to talk to you about was, you know, we we are very quick, as I have been, to blame social media, that social media companies, be it Facebook, YouTube, have been missing in action when it comes to helping moderates, helping marginalize Islamists, helping use their platforms that are the largest cash-heavy companies on the planet to help give the good guys and gals an edge. They have been missing in action, and I can talk to you forever about that. And certainly this is what I pray will happen with things like this podcast, is that they get viral, that we begin to have larger platforms from the Islamists that not only have their own media arms, be it Al Jazeera, the Saudi government media, the Syrian government media, the Iranian press TV and other government media. So they not only have the billions of governmental operations, but then they infuse it with Muslim Brotherhood Party apparatus in the West and domestically in Egypt and Qatar and other Islamist countries. But these platforms need to be engaged. So criticism of Google, of YouTube, of Twitter, for not only their abandonment and their decision to negligently stay on the sidelines, but their actually their empowerment of Islamists, their lack of balance when it comes to protecting American ideas, feminist ideas, democracies, be it European, American, or Israel's democracy, And the double standard when it comes to how critical the media platforms are of the West and how uncritical they are of the theocratic regimes and what's tolerated in those countries. As I mentioned to you a few episodes ago, Uber 
is now undergoing a billion dollar, I don't the exact number escapes me right now, but the amount of money that Uber through David Pluff and others are investing in the Saudi are accepting from the Saudis is just staggering. So these social media companies are, are knee deep with the enemies of freedom and liberty. And we need to recognize that. So bring in the home security report on counterterrorism that has been released on August 25th. And they provided an analysis that looked at exactly what is the role of social media. And they put their crosshairs on those companies and they came out locked and loaded that is the internet firms that are the problem and that they are the reason for not plucking out terrorists and they allow terror ideas to spread. And if we fix social media, then terrorism will go away. And as our friends at the reformist Quilliam Foundation have said, this report missed an opportunity to make progressive recommendations for their prevent strategy, such as a, a larger independent review and an oversight board to look at other aspects that so much of the radicalization is not only on the Internet. The Internet is the tool. It is the finger pointing at the moon. It directs them somewhere, but it is not the moon. It is a tool. So most of the time, the radicalization may begin or end on the Internet or facilitated, but that's not where it is operationalized. It is human beings that talk to other human beings that exist in social tribal networks on the ground in London and in America, in Boston, in Saudi Arabia, that then ultimately commit these acts of terror. So what happens is it's sort of the pot calling the kettle black when you have a government that in their report kept using the word Daesh, which is an Arabic letter acronym for ISIS. Dawrat al-Islamiyah which is the same thing as ISIS, Islamic State in Syria and Iraq. But at the end of the day, the government wanted to deflect. It was all about deflection from their from their missed opportunities, from their lack of will, lack of leadership in engaging in a war of ideas. They wanted to blame Facebook, blame YouTube, when in fact they're simply one piece of the puzzle. Yes, there's enough blame to go around, but for crying out loud, for the government of the UK, which has been actually ahead of us, because they've been learning their lessons from 7-7 on. But for them to say, oh, it's all about the internet, uh, no. Uh, it is much more than that. We are fighting a battle that on all fronts, be it media, be it government, be it universities and academia, be it the networks, interfaith networks, social networks, organizational cultural organizations and communities are so far disengaged to the point that the Islamists have dominated it and it's become a culture of victimology in which there is no longer a conversation about how to counter political Islam and theocratic Islam and that 
it's not about counter-terror, it should be about counter-Islamism. And that's the point that our friends at Quillian made when this report was released in the UK. And if you really want to counter-radicalization on the internet, what's the tool? What are the ideas? You have to have an idea that you're going to transport in that medium. And the idea that needs the empowerment of both public and private networks is the belief that in a true contest of ideas, liberalism will defeat theocracy, that Islamism will die on the vine, that jihadism, the militancy associated with adherence to Islamism, will die once Muslims are exposed critically to the importance of freedom and liberty. That was missed in this supposedly landmark report, and I applaud Quilliam for what they've exposed in that. And I ask you, join me in my criticism of social media, but also bring even more to our political and academic and media leaders than simply criticizing those who've actually provided the venue for the Arab awakening and the turning over of governments, be it in Egypt with Facebook and Syria with YouTube and all of these revolutions that, yes, may have brought more chaos and obviously more danger. But in the end, you cannot defeat radical Islam without defeating these dictators of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. So the social media has been the avenue for that. And if anything, they've led that. And their tools have been allowed the freedom to do that. Now we just have to get the right ideas on their highways. This is Zudi Jasser, and I'll be right back with Reform This. Reaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Zudi Jasser, and I'm back with you on Reform This with the Blaze Radio Network, your faithful podcast host bringing you weekly discussion about the things very few people talk about, especially your faithful American Muslim who's uh, trying to engage in reform and to highlight the areas that all of you can join me in exposing and, and empowering you to join me in this battle against not only radical Islam, but political Islam. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm going to break this promise that I had told myself that I would not talk about this ridiculous thing about this burkini thing. And, and as I was talking about Europe and social media, you know, you have to talk about these things that are going viral. And, and, and I just have to spend a couple minutes on this issue about banning the burkini. And for those of you who might have missed it, the burkini is this conservative dress that allows women who dress in a more Salafi conservative way in the Muslim community to to cover their bodies in a way that they find to be 
religiously appropriate and also then swim publicly. It also includes a head cover, but it does not include a face cover. The burqa is really what the burkini is, and the burqa is a clothing that takes away the body shape of a woman and covers her from basically from head to toe and to hand. But it also includes a niqab. The niqab is the facial veil. So where do I stand on this? I know there's been a lot of passionate descriptions of why America and France should not bend to the Islamic ways and if if they can make rules against nudity and other things in certain places then why can't they make rules about personal clothing and you know listen there the the battles that we should fight should be consistent with principles that are defensible that are not simply done in order to target Islamists or Muslims. Now, again, I say Islamists. I'm no, no fan of Islamists. I'd like to see them defeated, but I don't want to see those ideas made illegal because you will not defeat them by making their ideas illegal. I hope that if there's anything you've learned by listening to me and joining me every week is that we won't win this war by making their ideas illegal. It'll push them underground, make them harder to monitor, and turn them into an underground gang that makes them far more effective. Ask the Egyptians, ask the Chechnyans, ask these countries that work, ask the Saudis and how they operate with Wahhabis. Well, the Wahhabis also run the government in many ways, but but uh, uh, I'm talking about the Wahhabi militants, the populist Wahhabis that aren't running the government and are creating the radical groups. When they try to push them underground, it fuels them. So... As much as the photo op of cops or whoever that was trying to remove the burkini-clad woman from the beach or asking her to remove the clothing itself was absurd, I can't believe we're spending all this time on it. And the, and the issue is, is, is not that a society cannot control what people wear from a a modesty perspective, yes, obviously nudity is, is something that even our own Supreme Court has said that is beyond the limits of free expression. But at the end of the day, how would you define burkini from somebody wearing a raincoat because it's raining? How would you define burkini or burka from clothing that people may wear I mean, unless you knew that that person was Muslim, they may simply be wearing something else. So are you going to then prevent people from wearing anything that looks like a burqa, but maybe something from some other culture or some other fashion statement? And again, I want to separate that conversation. I want to separate it from a conversation with the niqab or the facial covering. There is no right to go in public with a face mask. That is not a right to privacy when you're in public. And even the Supreme Court and various courts have ruled that in, for example, in demonstrations, people don't have a right to wear masks, that it makes it almost impossible to keep the area secure because you cannot identify people that commit crimes. And identification for individuals 
who commit crimes being accountable to their acts publicly is important in a free society so that you do not punish the group but only punish individuals. So, obviously, identification runs through facial recognition. And, you know, if people cannot agree to facial recognition, then they really should not be operating in a free society. So the niqab is different. The burkini, the burqa, whatever you want to call it, it's nonsense for us to talk about it. There is no moral equivalency. Don't even go there. I, you know, I get it about the way they treat women in Iran and Saudi Arabia. You're going to find no bigger advocate for destroying their ideas in Saudi Arabia and Iran and elsewhere about the anti-feminism and absurd way that they they objectify women in what they do and steal them of their bodily autonomy. But the response, no matter how, I'm not making a moral equivalency, but the response, no matter how much less, does not make two wrongs a right. Enough said. Now, the fascinating thing is when we talk about reform, what do we mean? And, you know, I think that one of the most common questions I get is, Zudi, what is this reform when it comes to the Qur'an? Can the Qur'an be reformed? And we've answered a little bit of that in previous episodes, but today I wanted to drill down a little bit just to focus in since the the Qur'an is the Muslim scripture that we believe is the word of God. In Arabic, it's the word of God. In English, it's simply human translation and interpretation. So I think that's one of the the primary things to, to understand up front is that you can reform the human interpretation, and any translation is human interpretation when it comes to Muslim feelings about the Qur'an. But the Qur'an in Arabic is felt to be to be the inalterable direct word of God to every Muslim I know. But again, unless Muslims are sitting and having a direct conversation with God, and God is speaking to us about what those passages mean in 2016, then it's simply passages that were dis- that were disseminated to the comma through the angel Gabriel to the prophet Muhammad between 610 and 633 AD or CE. That much we know as Muslims, and we know that the reality is that that scripture is to a Muslim authentic. Now the interpretation in this anthology that we call the Qur'an, and I call it anthology because it's not ordered historically from the beginning of time to the end, as a book would be. It is ordered from longest passage to the shortest, which was put together in an anthology after the Prophet died. But the messages, the passages, the verses, the chapters were identified during the transmission of the Qur'an as to where they go. And the Arabic is felt to be authentically the word of God. But yet reform is possible. Reform of those interpretations, even when it is as starkly clear that says, cut the hands of those who steal. The Wahhabis and other Salafis, Salaf means the friends of the Prophet, those who want to interpret things exactly the way the Prophet Muhammad Intent, you know, are are felt to have been done at the time of the prophet. Uh, then, 
there is no room for debate because it's black and white. It's right there. It says cut the hands of those who steal. Well, wait a minute. The language, though, is where the debate is. And I was blessed to have grown up not only with a father but grandfathers that were experts in both English and Arabic and were able to answer the questions of inquisitive teens and and young kids who, who had many questions about the interpretations of these passages. And I talk about them in my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, but in there I get into this debate about what do these passages mean. And when we come back, I'm going to go through a few of those with you so that we can drill down a little bit about how a reformist, a modern Muslim, would look at a passage and when you say sever the hands, you can sever a relationship, right? That doesn't mean physically hurt, it just means separate. So when you cut the hands of those who steal, the word sever or uqda in Arabic, as it says, could mean to remove them from the ability to do that, to sever their ability, not directly the hand from their body, but to sever their ability to do that. So to make some of the passages metaphorical is, I think, key to modernization and reform. To make some of the passages historical versus modern and reinterpret those as not what the prophet interpreted then, but what would they interpret, what would he interpret today? This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Coming up today on Pat and Stew. Getting a lot of help with the whole thing. I mean, there was a no doubt this weekend it. where she looked great. I think that interview that we just aired, she was wearing her young girl outfit. I mean, they've made her look younger, making her wear, not wear the Mao Zedong yeah. stuff. Uh, like that's the, a good yeah, that outfit like, right looked, there. She looks so catty. It she was, she okay. was, they Go showed her the walking off stage had, with that outfit. I couldn't. I didn't know it was her. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to our last segment this week of Reform This. And thank you for staying with me and thank you for subscribing and being with me as we venture into rarely addressed issues and especially from a reformist Muslim perspective. Many of you out there are uh, Google frequently, I'm sure, uh, the Quran and understand, for those of you who understand Islam, know the central nature that the Quran has in our lives as Muslims. Now, it's not all of Islam. Obviously, the Hadith, which is in Arabic, is the discussions of the Prophet or the sayings and stories or sirah of the Prophet, that they have also a significant impact upon various traditions and practices, theological beliefs in Islam. But there's no doubt that the central authority in Islam is the Qur'an and what we believe to be the revealed word of God through the angel Gabriel to the prophet Muhammad. And I do believe that most of the battle for reform will be won when we're able to modernize our interpretations of Qur'an. Now, I still will give you one caveat on that, which is I believe that most of the vicious militancy, as much as there are certain passages we need to deal with in the Qur'an, 
you won't even find the word sharia in the Quran. You find the root. Sharia means the path to the watering hole, which ultimately defines itself over time in Islam as Islamic jurisprudence or Islamic law. But that word, if it was so important and central to Islamic practice, you'd think God would have put it frequently every other page into the Quran, and it's it's barely there. There are a lot of laws in the Quran, a lot of stark descriptions of punishments from God, not from human beings, but from God if we violate his law or reject his existence. There's no doubt that that's there. But they're not called sharia. They're, they're simply described as his rules, his injunctions. So, as those passages are looked at, I do believe that there are, and, and many, unfortunately, what happens is the, the Qur'ans put out by Saudi Arabia, Iran, and other extremist regimes with, with billions are Qur'ans that fill mosques in the West, fill the interpretations that are dominating our communities, and they're looked upon as the final interpretation of what those passages says, and then Dr. Google becomes the Wahhabi-dominated Islamist community. I mean, even look at communities like Bosnia. Bosnia was just a vibrant, moderate Muslim community, even back in the 90s, as that war ended finally. And it divided, and much of the, the books that I read, be it Elijah Esbegovich's book on Islam between East and West, and other books from modern Muslim scholars came from that area. Now you look into Bosnia and Kosovo, and the Wahhabis are building mosques, uh, spreading their interpretations of the Quran and others. So remember that much of the English and translational, interpretational passages that are purported to be Qur'an are Wahhabi or Salafi in their nature and thus fundamentalists. You know, for example, one of the most famous quotations that people cited since 9-11 to prove that the Qur'an is anti-Semitic is an, a, a premise that I disagree with, but is the one from the second chapter, verse 64. Prophet of Doom translates it as, but you Jews went back on your word and were lost losers. So become apes, despised and hated. We made an example out of you. 264. Now, my father and, and others have spent years of their lives translating the Quran, uh, bless their souls, from classical Arabic. And you can look at many translations out there. The point here is is the fact that to understand the language and the narrative and also the context of which these things are put in. So, for example, if you look at my father's translation or others, it says that same passage he interprets as, even after all that you Still abandon your obligations, and if it were not for God's favor to you and mercy upon you, you would have been lost. Wow, that's a big difference <laughs> from the same passage interpreted in quite a different way. So, there are other examples, and you know, these other examples of 
passages that are interpreted in in very different way. Chapter 8, verse 65. It's interpreted on the internet through Wahhabi interpretations. It says, O Prophet, urge the faithful to fight. If there are 20 among you with determination, they will vanquish 200. If there are 100, then they will slaughter 1,000 unbelievers. For the infidels are a people devoid of understanding. I can't tell you how many times I get that to our website at AIFdemocracy.org. People will say, how can you believe this stuff and still be Americans? Pretty stern stuff for sure. But the bottom line is, is that one must keep in mind that Arabs did not all at once embrace the faith any more than those in Jesus' time flocked all at once to his message. The violent resistance to Muhammad in certain Arab quarters was so great that it did lead to battles that pitted Muhammad and his followers against the pagans. And remember who the communities were in Saudi Arabia, what is now Saudi Arabia, was what was the Nejd at the time, and who those communities were. And the bottom line is, is if if you're Muslim, you believe that Islam came to convert pagans, not Christians and Jews, but pagans, because that's the populations that were there at the time. And that's what we're taught in Islam. Every religion has established in its history sort of a theology and principles of just war against those who seek to destroy and murder their faith community. Like with most Jews and Christians, Muslims are not pacifists. So there are going to be passages in the Quran that deal with if all else fails, this is a time to defend yourself through war. So the question is, as then many say, well, those passages came last, and they cancel all previous passages, so therefore they are a sign that Islam is a warring faith because it cancels through what's called nasakh, or a concept of cancellation, uh, that uh, or um, abrogation. When you abrogate a previous verse, then the idea is that, well, God canceled those. And I will tell you that the Islam that I learned does not do that. That the only time you can abrogate previous verses is when God directly abrogates them and makes it clear, such as with alcohol in the Quran, in which God tells Muslims that you have failed my original permission that allowed you to drink as long as you didn't go to your prayers drunk. And since you could not go to your daily prayers sober, I then have instructed you and passed an injunction that prevents you from drinking wine or alcohol. And canceling the previous verses, as he says, as God tells us. But you cannot cancel that which God did not clearly cancel. So this is the thing, is the Wahhabis, the Salafis believe they are God and they can make interpretations. While many would say that the reason the 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 warring passages are towards the end is that God teaches Muslims how to first and foremost at most be peaceful. And once he's taught them that, then if necessary, a just war, just as is taught in the Old Testament in Jewish and Christian just war theory, that war can be fought if necessary. And I, as a loyal American, joined the U.S. Navy because my loyalty was to this country first and foremost. But I would fight a war for this country. I'm not a pacifist. So I think it's essential now, obviously, 
as an American, I need to also reject Islamism, which believes that we have allegiance to Muslim armies. And we've talked about that before on this podcast. But the question is the, the concept of just war. If there's a battle that God tells us is justified, then we can fight those at that time. And we can then say that in the future, the nations we belong to may fight wars that we will then stand with. The last passage I want to talk about is the one that is often cited. It's chapter 2, verse 189 to 193. They ask you about the lunar months, say these are timing devices for people and for pilgrimage. It is not about piety to come to the houses from the back of them, but piety is to be God-fearing. So come to the houses by the doors and fear God so that you may succeed. And fight in the way of God with those who fight you, but aggress not. God loves not the aggressors. Kill them anywhere you find them and push them out from where they pushed you out. Persecution is more egregious than, grievous than slaying. Do not fight them in the holy mosque until they fight you there. Then if they fight you, slay them, such as the consequences for the non-believers who fight you. But if they desist, surely God is all-forgiving, all-compassionate. So in this verse, God refers, and again, you need to understand what this is taken out of, what time in history for Muslims, refers to only the tribe of Quraysh, and this cannot be extrapolated to any other group at any other time to justify any other war. Similarly, the verse also refers to the earlier time in which Muslims had been removed from their homes in Mecca before emigrating to Medina. So with this interpretation, one obviously can make the argument that Islam advocates peace and condones war only as a last resort, as a defensive measure against annihilation. For example, as an American, I supported the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq because they were protecting us from the imminent threat of Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein, who would not reveal whether they had weapons of mass destruction. So similarly, the targeting of Al-Qaeda's operations, but Saddam's operation, was a moral and righteous attack upon the epitome of evil. The targeting and killing of Imam Anwar Awlaki was also a righteous mission. He called for violent attacks against our citizens, including the Fort Hood massacre. So, you know, liberty-loving Muslims such as myself wholly reject the notion that this verse or any of the others that refer to battles during the time of the Prophet Muhammad can be interpreted to justify any type of act of terror, and have any relevance anymore to today since our allegiance, our loyalty is to the American system and the American military and the militaries of our nations, wherever we may live. So the centrality of reform is to separate these passages, the historical accuracy of what they refer to, to saying that they apply to all times. Yes, the only way to relegate the interpretation of these passages is not only to say that it applied to this battle with Quraysh, the tribe at the time that rejected Islam, but also to say that any Muslim army, any call for battle for Muslims is no longer relevant. Because if you continue to ascribe as a Muslim, even if the country is 99% Muslim, as in Bangladesh or in Iran or Syria, which is 80-90%, but still, if the majority are Muslim, 
if you call it a Muslim army with a jihad as its drive, then ultimately you're going to get to this just war principle that will end up a supremacist interpretation of the Qur'an versus what the American and French revolutions and Western revolutions proved that the best states, the most free states that recognize individual rights under God are those that reject theocracy and reject the collectivization of the community based on one faith identity. And that's the only way to modernize these interpretations of the Qur'an and to separate what they describe, yes, as jihad, as mujahideen, those who are fighting for God, from a concept of the jihad as the military. So when the Muslim Brotherhood calls itself a political party, but yet has as its motto on its emblem swords that says that they will die for the path of Allah, that is a terrorist organization, that is an Islamist organization, that is not only not peaceful, but no way could ever come to terms with a modern interpretation of these passages in the Qur'an. So, the whole of political Islam is the lens through which you either look through these passages and somehow say they don't really apply, but they only apply to Muslim countries, which is an apologetic that is dangerous and deceptively moderate when in fact it's evil or you say we condemn all Muslim armies we condemn all Islamic states and we ascribe this to history and believe that just wars through our secular governments and that these passages inform how we may define and be able to describe after we've learned what it means to be peaceful be a part of a society that determines which wars are just based on moral systems, not based on an Islamic or Muslim one only, but one based in what's human rights-based and universally-based universal principles of human rights. We'll continue this discussion later, but for this week, I thank you for joining me, and keep thinking about when your teachers point to the moon, it's only the idiots that look at the finger, and we are not looking at the finger here. We're looking at where we're going, what the ideas are, and how to defeat them from social media to immigration and refugees to the war of ideas and even down to the core roots of scriptural interpretations for Muslims in our Quran. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This for the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you for joining me. We'll see you next week. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.